What's up, everyone? This is Mike Cashew, and you're listening to the Brute Strength Podcast. This week, I interviewed Brute weightlifting coaches Matt Bruce and Jeff Whitmer. These guys are two of the best American weightlifters of the past decade and a half. Um, together, they've totaled nearly 10 world team appearances. Uh, Matt was a, a two-time alternate for the Olympics. Um, they, they just have so much success in the sport of weightlifting and have been in it both since the age of 12, uh, and now they're you know around 33. So together, they have so much experience as athletes, and now they have transitioned into coaching roles uh, at, you know, at their home gyms as well as through Brute. So we talk a lot about uh, competing as well as programming and kind of when to push, when to back off, all that kind of stuff. So lots of good information for beginner and intermediate lifters especially. Before we get started, please take the time to leave me a review by going to brutestrengthtraining.com slash podcast slash review. All right, what's up, guys? I'm here with Matt Bruce and Jeff Whitmer. How y'all doing, guys? Good. What's going on, Mike? Yeah, I was just waiting for Jeff to talk. He's a little slow. I appreciate that. Um, throughout the duration of this podcast, I think from time to time, you're going to have to uh, give give Jeff a chance to speak, okay? Yeah, so I figured the World Wide Web is big enough for both of our heads to fit in. Uh, so hopefully it works out. I, I know we just increased our bandwidth, so we're going to roll it's, with it. It's not big enough for yours, so I don't know how it'd be big enough for both of it, but both of us, but we're going to give it a shot. So let's start out. T- tell everybody about uh, each of your backgrounds, um, and then I want to know how you guys met. Man, I'll, I'll, I'll start this off. So I started out in – I got involved in Olympic weightlifting when I was about 10 years old. Uh, my dad competed in weightlifting, and I was playing like baseball and soccer at the time, and I was a pretty small kid. Just He wanted me to get a little bigger for other sports. Kind of, He really wanted me to play football. He used to be a football coach. But uh, I started out lifting, and really after about six months or so, really took a liking to it, and he uh, um, got my first meet, and kind of the rest is – rest is history from there gave up everything else and started uh competing in weightlifting i I stopped the other sports at about 13 years old and uh kind of that leads into my story of how i met matt bruce we both qualified for a uh, um it was an international team at the time a school age team trip was was uh 16 and under then it was all the the louis sear in canada and i just remember seeing i think matt was a 69 at the time and he he was he was one of those kids. He was like fifteen, but matured really matured really young. So he he looked like he was nineteen, um, and had I just remember everyone talked about him his big legs and being like ripped at the meets, and everyone would talk about it. Everyone assumed he did all this bodybuilding training, but uh, that was a uh, that and we were kind of telling a story too about that meet before we we went on went live here. But uh, I think Matt was a sixty nine. He got third at at that meet. Then from there, I think we were at a, a junior squad camp in Colorado Springs that summer. Then just um, became friends really since then hung out at all the meets and i went down to go down to the hatch dome down there in uh, baton rouge and trained with coach hatch from matt in the uh, in the summers when i was in high school um for a week or two at a time and then what, what yeah. te- before but before you go matt tell us a little bit about your uh you know as you got older jeff what were some of your accomplishments as a weightlifter yeah absolutely um 
I won a, let's see, five junior national championships, uh, a couple senior national titles, a couple American Opens. Um, I competed on a senior world team, three junior world teams, uh, a couple world universities, got a medal at the world universities. Um, let's see, my best lifts in a meet, I'll kind of go on there, 158 kilo snatch and a 197 kilo clean and jerk in 94 kilo class. Set a couple couple junior American records from school age, which were all have all been broken uh, many times since then. Awesome. Matt? So I got started in the eighth grade at my local high school. Uh, they select like 20 kids into this small little high school program, and it's nothing but like the biggest dorks and geeks that you have to test into this program. And... Uh, we're in the, the PE class and the PE coach notices that you know, I'm a lot stronger than the other kids and moving a lot better than the other kids. And he says, Hey man, uh, I want, I want to introduce you to the head football coach who then introduced me to Gail Hatch, who became my weightlifting coach. But basically they wanted me to get stronger and faster for football. And that way I'd be a year ahead of all the incoming freshmen, like starting to do snatches and cleans and jerks. Uh, so I'd be a step ahead in the program. And then after about two months of training with Coach Hatch to prepare me for football, Coach Hatch called me in the office, and I'll never forget, he sat my dad down in the office, too. He said, son, he's like, have you ever played football in your life? I said, no, sir. He's like, well, I'm going to tell you, you're not a football player. You're an Olympic weightlifter. And I, was, I had no clue what that was. And, you know, 17 years later, I uh, met a, a, a bunch of great friends and, and uh, did a bunch of great things in Olympic weightlifting. Uh, and, and made a bunch of memories uh, from it. Can, can each of you? Oh, well, before we go into that, what? Uh, tell everybody about some of your accomplishments later in your career. So, uh, all in all, seven world teams, uh, two-time Olympic team alternate, uh, Pan American medalist, national champion, American Open champion, and. Uh, a couple other international medals I went I run uh, my best list pound per pound I snatched 148 kilos and clean and jerked 182 as a 77 awesome and and both of you ended your careers for uh, separate reasons can can each of you talk about that briefly and kind of like what yeah take it take us through the the why uh, how you got there and and especially like the mental and emotional side as you were ending your career. Yeah, I'll kind of, I'll jump in on that one. Um, I stopped pretty young. I mean, and I you know kind of what you were talking before. I always say I, I didn't necessarily retire. I, I really just feel like I, I really just quit. I mean, I, it stopped at about 24 years old. Um, so I competed in the Olympic trials in 08 and, and had a good year that year, got a medal at the couple medals at the Pan Ams and, um, you know, after the Olympic trials, I was, you know, had a couple couple nagging injuries, and I didn't have my degree yet, and I ended up competing in the, the nationals the following year. Didn't do didn't do so well, but was kind of at a point in my life too where I was like, all right, kind of, I want to get my degree, I want to move on and start working and um and and making you know making some money. So I got out of the kind of walked away from the sport and got my degree, and then um, really just just started working from there. And it was kind of tough for me and my. My mid twenties was rough, kind of working those 
working a day job when I was used to, to really just training and, and traveling and, and being around, um, you know, training partners. And it was, it was tough for me to, to adapt and definitely have some regrets. Um, you know, had some regrets then, but I think everything kind of happens for a reason. I'm pretty happy with, uh, with, you know, with, with where I'm at now and, and some of the decisions I made, made then and ended up kind of, it put me on a pretty good course for where I'm at now in my life. You ever feel like, um, you didn't accomplish what you could have? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that would, it, it kept me up at night for a while too. Like when, and I'd think about it nonstop, it would just eat me alive where, and I knew like I had a lot more potential than what I showed. And, um, you know, I was able to get some of that still where, where I never really, I never looked at weightlifting as having a, you know, people call it hey, their weightlifting career, where I, I never looked at it like that. For me, I started so young and it was just, it's just a part of life. It's just what you do. I mean, I'm going to work out the rest of my life. I'm still going to do snatches and cleaning jerks as long as I can. Um, so I was still kind of able to fulfill some of that void where I'm still training and still able to, to challenge myself. But it, yeah, it does, um, it, it does, it did affect me. I say it did affect me mentally just knowing I left some lifts on like the competition platform, but you, you never know, maybe, maybe get on the, the masters. Uh, we joke around about maybe I'm only a few years from being a masters lifter. So maybe get on the, on the, uh, on the competition platform there and maybe cut to 85 challenge up Matt if he wants to make a comeback. <laughs> Shit, you're a 105 now. Oh no, I'm a I'm a light 94. <laughs> I'm, I'm lean. Kidding. I'm lean right now. It's 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 the summer, so I'm a light 94. No, it's just you just, you just got off a of brute body, I think, huh? I'm right in the middle of it, actually. <laughs> it's going it's going on pretty well. So I'm uh, I'm uh, happy with uh, that that program. But it's, good. Jake did a, Jake did a good job on it. Matt, tell us about uh, you know kind of how you winded down your career. Yeah, so my story is a little different. Uh, I stayed through uh, the hard times, and like I said, 17 years was my career. And uh, by the end of it uh, was the 2012 Pan Ams slash Olympic trials, similar to what's what's going on this year at the Pan Ams. Um, at that time, I'll never forget. Coach Zygmunt looked at me in the eyes, and he was like, "I'm getting ready to go out for my first clean and jerk." And he says, he's like, where's the fire? I don't see the fire in your eyes. You know, you're at the Pan Ams. It's Guatemala. Like, get fired up. And, like, I looked deep down in my soul and, like, the fire, it wasn't there. Like, I was literally just competing just to to be there. And at that point, I knew I had to walk away because uh, if it's not a passion for me, then I'm not going to stay in it. So uh really got burned out on the sport. And it's been four years since I retired. And. I don't do much heavy lifting at all. Uh, you know, I, I, I participate in CrossFit, and I really en- enjoy staying in shape uh, in that aspect. But, uh, yeah, I just truly got burned out on the sport at the end. How was that mentally and emotionally? Was it kind of a, a clean split since you knew that you were burnt out? Or was it um, – I'm sure there were at least times where you kind of felt like there was a, something missing, huh? So for the most part, it was a relief uh, to not have to go into the gym every day and know I had to hit certain numbers going into certain parts of my training as far as a competition coming up or whatnot. So that was a relief. Uh, There were a few periods, uh, very short-lived, where I started training heavy again for about a month, thinking I was going to get back into it, only to realize that uh, my heart wasn't in it anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... For the most part, yeah, a pretty clean break and uh, still feel really good about it. Awesome. 
So let's go into some uh, into talking about some technical weightlifting and stuff like that. Um, so between the two of you, you've been to the Olympic Training Center. You've trained all over the country as well as with coaches from other countries. Um, at, you know, at certain times, obviously you were. Uh, in your respective states for for the most part, but you, you got exposed to lots of different kinds of training. Um, so with that said, everyone snatches, clean and jerks, squats, pulls, etc. What are the characteristics of the best programs? What do they have in common? And what do they and what do they not have? Uh, I'm going to go have to say um, Abhijayev, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, Olympic weightlifting coach of all time from Bulgaria and Russia. Uh, coach Hatch had him in the office one day and was asking him the exact same question. You know, like, what makes the Bulgarian system the greatest in the world? And Abhijayev said, I don't understand. Every time I come to America, everybody argues over who's got the best system. He's like, in Bulgaria, we snatch, we clean, we jerk, we pull. And that's it. We all follow this. We do the Bulgarian system. Why argue over it? And it's so true. And all it, all it says is like, for the most part, people are doing the, – the elite coaches are all doing the right things. Uh, and to what it then comes down to is those elite coaches making program adjustments and, and really keeping their athletes motivated through the period of time uh, you know, getting them ready for a competition and having them you know, basically ready – to walk through a, a brick wall for their coach and you know and, and whatnot right so training environment having having like a like high energy and stuff like that is probably more important than um you know a few tweaks to sets and reps exactly yeah uh on an elite level on with the elite level coaches uh th there's no hidden system there's no hidden technique uh or anything like that it comes down to just who puts in the hardest and but smartest work without overtraining? Right. Because I, ideally, you have to take your body to a point of overtraining, but not overtrain. Uh, and to be able to, you know, be able to bring your athletes to that and let them know when to stop, you know, and when to push, uh, is is the best thing for the athlete. What do you yeah, think, think Jeff? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there is – people used to always kind of ask that too. Like, it was the big thing, what program or this or that. And, I mean, really, like Matt said, it, it really should be kept pretty simple as far as – the key is, you know, obviously doing doing the lifts and having yourself in that, um, you know, kind of replicating what a meet's going to be like. I'm, I'm more into the, the lower volume, um, you know, versus doing the, the more reps. It's just keeping it specific to how you're going to – how a meet environment is going to be. And then a coach comes in is kind of targeting, identifying where your weaknesses are um, and targeting those, you know, whether it be, you know, leg strength, technique, um, you know, mobility, flexibility, and then coming up with a plan, attacking those weaknesses and then just constantly, constantly reassessing and, and just adapting, um, you know, to kind of, to keep moving forward. I think that's the, that's the, really the the key, and I think that people think they're going to get someone's going to hand them this one year or six month program and say, "Hey, you know, have at it, follow the reps, and you're going to have huge success." Where, um, yeah, I mean, you could still have some success, but you know, in my opinion, the the, the belief, the, my belief is that you should 
you know, as far as the key is really to be able to adapt and having a coach that's going to continue to identify those weaknesses and then make changes in the program throughout to, to continually address those weaknesses so you can keep moving forward, um, you know, with your progress. I like that. So there, so basically you're saying like the, the rigid programs are not going to be as successful as something, uh, where you have a, you have a plan going into the day, but you can make adjustments based on how you're feeling. Um, you know, whether it be feeling strong or just, you feel like you're, uh, you, you might get injured if you're, if you're going too hard. Yeah, absolutely. I think people will, will kind of buy into what's always on the on the paper or in the computer and they'll look at it and they'll say, hey, they're going to determine the success of their workout of whether or not they, they meet that. And they'll just do everything they can just to do what's on that piece of paper, even though it could be detrimental moving forward or being successful at a meet. Um, you know, where I think you got to keep the end game goal in mind. We're, we're granted sometimes you're going to have to push, you know, weightlifting, you're going to have to push through some pain. You're going to feel some discomfort, um, you know, but really you kind of have to know when it, when are you on that verge of possibly injuring yourself and it, it could be detrimental. So I think it's kind of, um, to it's, it's kind of training, you know, obviously training people to, um, you know, to use good judgment uh, in their training is, is kind of part of the art of coaching as well. So, Let's talk about this for a second. Um, it's one thing if you have a, a seasoned coach around to do this for you. Now, Brute Ole is 100% remote, and we can't have eyes on these people uh, you know, day-to-day. We can get, they can get feedback via the Facebook group, but a lot of times they're doing that uh, you know, after the fact. Um, and, and not before their training and they're not like filling out a report on how they're feeling every day. And a lot of people that are listening to this show are probably in the same boat, right? They're, they're doing some kind of remote program. They don't necessarily have an expert coach that they trust. What are some things that they can, they can be, uh, on the lookout for? And even if there, there are coaches listening, what, what do they look for in their athletes to tell them to either slow down, take a deload day, a week, um, et cetera. Yeah, and I think too, everyone's, you know, most of the people, you know, have day to day jobs or families or there's different variables that can pop up to where you need to, to kind of change your training. And I always say, kind of use good judgment. If you're going into a week of training, you know, you have an extra long meeting that day or you have um, to take the kids to soccer practice or there's going to be extra things to, to adapt and make changes in your week and just having the mindset of, of being flexible. And getting as much work as you can during the week, even if you have to move some things around, split the days up. It's just getting creative to to get all the work in. Gotcha. And is it so obviously stress is a huge factor, like life stress is going to contribute to the same kind of system that like workout stress contributes to. And like all of those can lead to overtraining together, correct? Absolutely. And, and I think this is interesting too. So I'll, I'll talk with a lot of college kids at, at my gym who are, you know, kind of aspiring weightlifters or, or crossfitters that were trying to qualify for the regionals. And they'll, they'll kind of bust their ass to try to qualify for regionals and they'll get pretty close. Then all of a sudden, once classes end, even though maybe they're only taking 12 credit hours, it's still kind of the hours of studying and exerting that energy. Uh, studying where also, and then their training takes off once they're, uh, you know, once they don't have to study and kind of put their, their mind into that. So I think it's always kind of, 
it's kind of interesting because you don't really take into account that even if you're just sitting at a desk, you're not using that much energy, but it's really, um, you know, just the energy as far as having to think, I think it really just affects your training. Right. Matt, with your athletes, uh, especially like in at your gym, how do you know if someone is basically just being a wimp and trying to get out of doing the work and versus, uh, you know, they're getting close to a, an overtrained state? Uh, so good question. Uh, one thing I'll do with my athletes is I'll, I'll time them in between sets. Uh, typically, my athletes will take about a minute and a half to two minutes in between sets. If they start taking longer than that, uh, and if and if they look like really lackadaisical, then a lot of times that's because of central nervous system fatigue, and then I might make adjustments for that. Another cue might be if I got a guy that's always coming in the gym, very talkative, uh, in a good mood, talking to everybody in between sets and reps, and he then comes in the next day and he's not talking really to anybody. He's kind of just going through the motions of the workout at a very slow pace. A lot of times that's from central nervous system fatigue. Uh, them just telling me like, I don't feel good today, uh, isn't necessarily a good indicator. Uh, it, it could be, but there's so many factors because their girlfriend might've broke up with them that day or their dog died or so many other, uh, external factors that could be playing in that, that they can get over. Uh, so as a coach, you have to decide what's external and what's internal. So if it's an internal factor, like central nervous system fatigue, then they do have to deload. They do have to take some time off. Uh, for the day or for the week uh, to allow their central nervous system to recover. Uh, but if it's just something that, you know, they're just sad about because they got a bad grade on a test, uh, you as a coach has to step up and know your athlete good enough to know how to pull them out of that. Uh, and that's why my coach used to always say you have to, to stay in the eye of the storm. Uh, the coach that's sitting in the office, uh, you know, eating eating their lunch while their athletes are out there working out, uh, is not going to be the successful coach. It's the coach that's out there every day, rep for rep with the athletes, knowing their telltale signs of when their central nervous system fatigues uh, will make the biggest difference within their athletes. And one more thing, uh, for those of you who don't have a coach, um, the, the one of the best ways to tell is just by assessing your own like desire to be in the gym. So, if you're, you know, if it's if you're a serious weightlifter, crossfitter, etc., you're probably generally very excited to train. If you come in one day and you're, you know, you're really dreading being at the gym or going to the gym, that's not really a big deal one day. If that goes on for an entire week uh, and you can't really track that back to, like Matt saying, an external factor uh, in your life. Then that's probably a sign that you're that you're overtrained, and then you need to back off for a little bit, or you're either going to get injured, or you're just going to plateau, right? So you need to deload. Then you're going to come back, be able to hit a PR, or just progress in your training. Would y'all agree with that? I agree, one hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Let's talk about uh, people that are new to competition. What advice do you have to for people that are uh, you know, haven't competed yet, are new to competing, and, and what do they do to prepare for that day, and what do they do on that day? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely it kind of depends what program they're already on, but I think for your first meet, something that's ideal is to have essentially just a, a, a two to three week peak, um, just something simple for your first one where you start 
you know, lowering the lowering the volume, cutting out some of the reps, going a little heavier, then getting strategic those weeks leading up where you're going up to, to certain percentages. And I, I know there's a couple different, you know, schools of thought there as far as how you should how you should taper. I know like a good rule of thumb is I, I would you know, a week out typically you're going up to around your your opening or second attempt snatch and then clean and jerk you might be going uh, just up to your last warm up clean and jerk. Um and then as far as squats and pulls go, I know a lot of times they say, always say 10 days out, you do your last heavy, you know, heavy pulling exercise. And then about a week out or so, you can do your last heavy back squat. And then four days out or so, you do your last heavy front squat. Um, but there's a definitely a, a lot of schools of thought there as far as or should you take off the day before the meet. Um, my best advice there always, I think the day before the meet, I always like to at least have someone going and, and really light or just move around with the bar. It kind of helps with those nerves um, too, just to get in there and kind of feel the bar and move around some. Um, yeah, then definitely, I think always, you always want it before your first meet, you know, if you don't have a coach, you know, try to get in contact with one or get in contact with people who have, compete, you know, have a lot of uh, competition experience and just reach out to them and get as, as much advice as you can and have them help, uh, help set your warm ups up for the, um, for the meet and set the pace up a good general rule of thumb. What you want to do is every, about every three lifts on the platform, um, you want to take a warm up, And what I would always do too, is depending on what athlete I'm working with, um, as far as, you know, their, you know, how, how, how long they're used to sitting between reps. I don't always like to just take, cause sometimes things slow down on the platform. Um, there could be misses and, you know, blood on the bar to always have a stopwatch too, and kind of time out where that lifter is not sitting longer than, you know, three minutes. Right. Um, so say it's longer on the platform. Those, so those three lifts could take five minutes at that. We want to make sure we're timing out. We have that three minute mark. Hey, let's add in an extra, extra warm up. Let's go down and do a power snatch just so you're, you're not getting cold. So just having that, that awareness. Okay. I, yeah. I was going to add, so you, you want them to do uh, a power version of the lifts in the in, at, as a warm up in between. At, yeah, at, at sometimes too, and and you want to you know I'll give an example power or pull. Okay. Uh, I'll give an example like Matt and myself were working with Hunter Bryan a, a couple weeks ago at nationals, and there was a there was a lot of misses in his session, and we thought he was going to be up, and um, there he was going to be up right away. Um, within those three lists, but they, they kept missing. There were some two-minute clocks in there. Matt says, hey, Hunter, go grab a pull with, with um, you know, I think it was 125, and he was going to go out for one, what's 135, 137, I believe, Matt, somewhere around the range of that. Just so it wasn't getting cold, just so he was feeling the bar. We weren't going to do a full lift. We didn't want to, you know, put out too much energy, but mm -hmm. didn't want to feel cold on the platform or that weight from, you know, if he goes five, six minutes without picking up a weight, right. we don't want to go out there. It's going to feel pretty heavy. So to a certain extent, it's a, it's, it's meant as well um, to where the weight doesn't feel as heavy because he's just touched something but there's something you said too about as far as moving it and staying warm mm -hmm. let me ask you all this it, it seems like if, if someone's on even a halfway decent program uh, you know for several months and then they're gonna go do a meet that week leading up to the to the meet they're not gonna get stronger the hay is already in the barn what are the biggest mistakes that people make uh, in that week leading up to you know, their first competition, say. Yeah, I'd say the biggest mistake is they'll go too heavy that week because they 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 get from this, this mindset that they have to feel those weights. They have to know what those those weights feel like. And then they might not, because they're not necessarily peaked that week for the weights, then the weights feel heavy to them. Then it starts messing with their mind, and then they'll get to the competition, and they're all screwed up. 
Uh, so it takes a lot of discipline. And Jeff and I, Jeff can definitely tell you too. Like at the World Championships, we would see our own teammates like mentally struggling. They'd be two or three days out from competition, like going to their opening lifts and missing them. And you know, then at that point, so many things are going through their head. Uh, but you nailed it right on the head. You're not going to make any improvements that last week. So go ahead and, and take the deload, uh, take the volume and intensity down a little bit, and just trust in your program. Trust, like you said, that the hay's in the barn that it's going to be there. Uh, and I just think the biggest mistake is a lot of athletes go heavy that week because they think they need to. They think they're losing strength because they're not going up to their openers that week of the competition. Uh, but at that point, it's just how mentally strong is that athlete. I, absolutely. And to kind of to, you know, to piggyback off what Matt's saying, I think if you're the week in the meet or you're a few days out and if your mentality is you're doing a lift for confidence and confidence only, that's the purpose you're going to lift. Hey, I want to make sure I can do this so I'm confident in the meet. You should not be trying it if that's the only reason. There's really no, there, there's no purpose that's served there um, the week of the meet where it's going to benefit you the day of the meet if you're just trying to, to hit lifts just to improve your, your confidence. That confidence should be built up over the course of the, the months leading up uh, to the meet. And so I think if you're really questioning yourself that much the week of the meet, um, I know it sounds a little bit harsh, but you either kind of need to, to take a step back and and, and really look at if you want to do weightlifting or really just kind of reassess your, your mental approach to competing. Right, right. What, what's the difference between, and this is a sharp turn, but what is the difference between uh, triple extension and the catapult method? And who, who is uh, a prime candidate for each? And maybe, yeah, ex yeah ex explain what each of those is first. So I'll go ahead and step up. Yeah, I'm uh, so, curious how you're going to explain this. So I think people people get into the argument of the catapult and triple extension. Uh, but if you really break down the lifts or the, the, the way it's taught, there's actually so similar that there's no need for so much confusion or argument about them. Um, so the catapult method basically says that the catapult system says that Triple extenders are trying to lift the bar up by coming up on their toes and shrugging their shoulders to their ears. Uh, so they're trying to say that the triple extension people are literally elevating the bar higher by coming up on their toes and shrugging. Uh, but real triple extension is triple extension actually happens through the course of the hips violently going into the bar and then you'll naturally come up onto your toes. And then the shrug is actually you, you pulling yourself underneath the bar. So I think there's a lot of confusion there that people who, who teach the catapult method think that the triple extenders are trying to lift the bar higher by coming up on their toes and shrugging their shoulders. But in actuality, what they're doing is their, their hip extension is so violent that they naturally come up on their toes slightly. And then they're shrugging to pull themselves underneath the bar. Adversely, catapult uh, teaches more the, the hip thrust instead of the scooping method. Uh, triple extenders, their hips will go forward and up underneath the bar to, to finish the, the bar vertically, while a catapult teaches more of the, the thrusting the hips into the bar to complete the lift. But in all honesty, they're both the same thing. We're both trying to thrust the hips into the bar as fast as we can, 
Just one cue is to thrust the hips and scoop underneath, while the other cue is just to thrust as fast as you can and not necessarily worry about jumping the weight, but thrust the hips and get down underneath it. But I think people just, they argue too much about the two differences when in actuality they're all too similar. Uh, If you actually break down a lifter that's quote-unquote catapult, I can sit there and argue with you why they're also a triple extender because they are coming on their toes slightly. They are shrugging at the end of the pull to get underneath the bar. Uh, so it's two ways to teach, but uh, it's, it's, it's all about what a coach feels more comfortable with. I don't think certain lifters are better at certain techniques than others. I think it's more about what the coach is comfortable teaching because in the end, the, the slight variance between the two is so small that it doesn't matter because on the elite level, you know, you might have 30% people, quote unquote, catapult lifters and 70% quote unquote, Polish style or triple extension, uh, that they're, they're both elite. So not one's better than the other. I think it's just two different coaching styles to get the same results. Okay. Is there a, uh, is there a thought process into, so it, it seems to me like based on people's body types, one might work a little bit better for that person. Is there a way to uh, kind of think about that and, and view that in athletes? Uh, no, I think, I think at that point you're thinking too hard into it mm-hmm. uh, because a catapult coach, for the most part, will teach the catapult method because that's what they're comfortable with, uh, even on a worldwide standard. Uh, I don't think, yeah, necessarily one athlete is better than another. Uh, maybe if you have a longer torso, you might technically be better for catapult. But at this point, like I said, there, there's so little variance between the two. I don't think it's that huge of a determinant factor of you becoming an elite lifter. Right. Yeah. And I'll, I'll kind of jump in here too. So it's an interesting topic and you hear it debated all the time, like Matt said. And um, I, I think that, you know, here, here's one thing. So with weightlifting, there's multiple ways to do things. You see people with different leverages, and, and it looks a little bit different. You can still get results doing it multiple ways. I know people are really passionate, and you'll hear a lot of debating on one way or the other. And there's kind of gets to the point of being a little bit, you know, insulting, you know, to to other people about it. So it's a kind of a frustrating topic for me. But here's kind of my thought press process on it. When I see the catapult being taught, I see a lot of cases where the coach are teaching it, the lifters further out over the bar and when the bar and when it's at their hips and they're they're thrusting their hips towards the bar and it's putting momentum putting the bar away from their body and they're leaning back more where it's putting you know backward momentum in the bar when they're going underneath it and um you'll in my opinion a lot of times the way it's taught and for what i've been at seminars when it's taught i've been in gyms where they teach it it is a low lower percentage technique um, you know, most the way most coaches teach you, where you see a lot of times the bar swinging and going behind people's heads. And I, I think there's nothing wrong with kind of leaning back and using some of this technique, or in some cases, you get a really strong back leaning over the bar. But my school of thought is to take a more traditional approach with shoulders slightly over the bar, less swing on the bar a, a, until you're more experienced, more seasoned a more seasoned lifter, you'll see lifters who maybe started with triple extension and more traditional pull, they'll 
build that more catapult methods to where they're kind of leaning over the bar more, they're pushing their hips forward for, but they have those thousands of, of reps in with the bar previously um, to where they have a better feel for the bar. So there's more control. So that lower percentage technique gets a little bit, gets higher and their success rate is better. So I, I think with, if you're going to adapt some of those catapult methods, I think it, it's better to kind of do later on versus um, after kind of learning how to lift, um, you know, more traditionally, if, if that makes sense. Right. And you said it's a lower percentage lift, meaning that basically in competition, the, the, you know, the stats show that there are more misses. People that lift this way have more misses and it's probably, it's just, there's larger margin for error, right? I mean, do I have hard data on it? No. I mean, this is kind of just instinct and in, in watching people using the technique and being at, at gyms. But I, you know, I, I definitely think there's any time you're straying away from, you know, the, the straight pull where you're, you're putting an arc on the bar and swinging it, it, it does turn into, you know, there is data there as far as it turning into, you know, the, the more swing you put on it, it it's going to be a lower percentage rate for success for the lift. Got it. Let's talk about, um, couple of terms that you guys talk a lot about and that we use in uh, the brute only assessment. So you guys talk about dynamic strength versus absolute strength. Uh, define that and, and describe how we know when someone needs to pr prioritize one or the other. So I'll, I'll hop in on this one. Um, yeah. I come from a the Hatch system, and Coach Hatch's system is known for building absolute strength. Uh, so I would I would be a candidate to fall into the dynamic strength uh, system. Uh, basically, it's it's a percentage system we use to decide how strong you are based off of how that strength compares to your Olympic lifts. So, for example, if I can front squat two hundred and 50 kilos or 260 kilos, but I can only clean 200 kilos, then there's probably, there's, there's, there's a problem. That means I'm super strong, but I'm not able to transfer it over to the lift. Um, inversely, if I can barely clean, uh, what my best front squat or front squat triple is, then that means as long as I get stronger, my lifts are going to go up. And so um, what we developed with the Brute Ollie in our assessment is that's the first determining factor is, you know, are you too, quote unquote, too strong and not able to transfer it to the lifts or are you not strong enough in order and your lifts are good, but once your strength goes up, then, uh, then your lifts will go up. So uh, what we do is if you need more absolute strength, then the focus is on the strength lifts like pulls and squatting and pressing uh kind of the slower movements but builds the base strength and foundational strength as we call it uh for olympic lifting and inversely if, if you're already super strong then there's no reason to be squatting three or four front and back squatting three or four days a week uh because you're already good at those things you need to be better at position so we do a lot of position work like top to bottom snatches or, or below the knee uh work uh, and a lot more Olympic lifting at certain sets and uh, volume and intensity to make the athlete be able to use that, you know, strength and be able to dial it into their Olympic lifts. Yeah, I mean, and really, 
what it is, it's a sensible approach to your training where you might have someone as far it's using strategy to how to break up your training where if you're going to get, you need to work on, you know, people make the mistake where they try to, they need to get a lot stronger and they're pushing their squats a lot and then they're trying to work their technique a lot. Well, it's kind of challenging to work the, the, all the technical movements when your legs are fatigued and you're really trying to push your squats and get stronger. So what it does is it identifies that balance um, so we're like, hey, we're, if you're going to really push the squats, we're not going to do quite as many technical movements. Or hey, you're like Matt said, his, Matt's legs were were already pretty strong, so he was a, more of a dynamic uh, program where we're gonna, then we are going to back off on the squats and put more of the energy and focus into good quality technical movements. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what do you what do you guys think is most common in CrossFit athletes? Is there one or the other that's more prevalent? Oh, um, that's a good question. I would say is- actually they, uh, it's a mixture. So it depends on the athlete. Uh, yeah, I think, and a lot of this has to do with genetics too, not necessarily the programming. Uh, yeah, you have some athletes that are so super strong, uh, and struggle to transfer it to the list. And then you have other athletes that are, yeah, they, they're so proficient at the list that, you know, they don't need as much strength. Uh, so, um, I think the biggest issue with, uh, CrossFit athletes is they don't do enough strength training. They think because they're doing heavy Metcons, they're getting enough strength training. But in all honesty, they, they have to look at the, the rep ranges that make you strong. If you want to be getting stronger at the Olympic list, there's no reason for you to be doing anything over like five or six reps on a snatch or a clean or a jerk to get quote unquote stronger. Uh, same with squats. There's no reason for you to be doing sets of 20 or even like sets of 12 on squats to get stronger because at that point you're working a different system that's not going to to help your the creatine phosphate system to, to make you a stronger athlete. I have a theory. I think I'm going to say people that have been training for five plus years and, and especially people that, have, that grew up playing uh, high school sports, college sports, they come in uh you know with a a much higher level of absolute strength than people that find weightlifting and find you know strength training in general through crossfit does that make sense so people that i was actually yeah go ahead yeah i was just gonna say that actually so you know, traditionally, if someone, you know, people, people with our program, for example, if they have a background in, you know, a collegiate sport or, or played football when they were younger, then found CrossFit later, generally their absolute strength is, is pretty high. And so then we, they'd be on a dynamic program versus someone who just found kind of weight training through CrossFit. Um, and then it's kind of vice versa where they're, a, you know, a little better technically and then they just need to improve on, you know, an absolute strength where they're going to be on a program with, with the more squats and pulls right. just to build a strength base. What, what are the – so especially this for, for you, Matt, since starting to work with CrossFit athletes, what are the biggest, thing that, biggest things that you've learned about programming weightlifting for these people? Uh, as as opposed to programming for pure weightlifters. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> you, you'll remember when I first started programming, and you said, "Yeah, we just you got to get these guys stronger." So I said, "Yeah, easy. I'll just put them on the same program I was on." So I had them lifting five days a week, you know, two to three hours a day, mm-hmm. just on pure lifts, and 
we couldn't figure out why their lists weren't going up and, and the hash system is proven. I was like, no, something, something's not right here. Like I don't, I can't figure out what it is. And then I ended up talking with coach Moffitt and uh, coach Hatch about it. And they made me understand that there's so many modalities that go into CrossFit that I'm not, I'm not taking into effect. And just like football, yeah, I need to get these guys stronger, but they need to get better at other things. They need to get faster. They need to have good running technique. Uh, their cardio has to be up. And now CrossFit those in so many more modalities than we had in football. So it made me take more of a strength and conditioning aspect to the weight training than an Olympic weightlifters approach. So it, and I'm still learning to this day uh, how to adjust my programming for our CrossFit athletes. Um, but yeah, I had to really take a step back and not necessarily train them as Olympic weightlifters, take what I've learned from Olympic weightlifting, but also take the strength and conditioning, uh, approach to where, yeah, I'm okay with having my athletes only train two, three days a week, four days a week. If we're trying to gain strength, you know, maybe an hour, hour and a half a day. So yeah, the biggest revelation I had was I had to decrease the volume. I had to decrease the intensity at certain points. And realize that CrossFit athletes go through seasons. So after the Open, if they're not going to regionals, then they have to, uh, a six-month period where they have to get stronger. And so that's where I come into play. That's where I'm going to program for them to get them stronger. And they might be doing three or four days a week uh, a lot of strength training, a lot of style that I was used to being an Olympic weightlifter. But then once we approach the Open season or get closer to it around November, October, I have to take more of a backseat role. I have to let the CrossFit coaches take over, and I'm, I have to basically kind of maintain slash get them a little bit stronger you know, going in. But my work is really done earlier in the season. As compared to an Olympic weightlifter, your goal year-round is to get stronger. So it, there was a huge learning curve, and like I said, I'm still learning to this day. Uh, but you know, our athletes are definitely doing well. You know, as proven with Brooke last year, winning both the snatch and the uh, the clean and jerk events. So, absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and just to explain this a little further to people, um, the you know what we didn't take into account is the fact that people are doing CrossFitters are doing weightlifting and they're and they're squatting and they're pressing and pulling within their metcon so we had this pure weightlifting program that's you know been proven uh and has and has developed several olympians right so it should it should always work if done correctly but we weren't taking into account that they were doing you know fran right after that or worse some of our like iwts which are hour-long grinder sessions and we weren't taking that that overall load into uh into account so basically people were just like we were talking about earlier in the show people were just reaching an, an, an overtrained state we we're just drilling their bodies into the ground and they couldn't recover fast enough so they just weren't making the progress that we wanted um so like I, like i was saying earlier a lot of people are in a remote training uh, environment, remote training situation. And this makes it really hard to work on technique if you don't have a coach, you know, watching every set, every rep. What are the, like the people that are, have been most successful on, you know, some of our programs, whether it be games prep, compete, only, whatever, 
what are the what are the 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 ones that are improving their Olympic lifting technique? What are they doing that the others aren't? Yeah, I can answer this one. So, um, the way we do a lot of our programming is we set up the percentages and the volume in certain rep ranges that will allow the athlete to get better technique wise in order to complete all the lifts. So, for example, if I have my athlete doing sets of five at eighty percent every week, you know, by a, it, not a deload week, but every week, every heavy week, they're doing that for a month or two, their body is going to adjust to get to be the best technique to complete those lifts. So a lot of it has to do with the programming as in if you can program at the right percentages and enough reps at the right percentages, your body's going to adapt and adjust and adjust. So if there's a period of time where I'm doing fives for – such a long period of time, my body's going to get better technique at 80%. And then I'm going to increase the intensity and decrease the volume a little bit. So I might be doing triples for maybe a month after that at like 85% or 90%. And then that carryover of the technique is going to happen naturally. So your body's going to find the best and most efficient way to lift the weight. Uh, and through the course of our, our, our technique analysis online and through Facebook, that helps out a lot, but a lot of that has to do with right percentage choices. Uh, if you always take your athletes to 95, 100% every week, uh, your body, the body's going to establish bad technique. But ideally, around 80 to 85%, your body should be able to hold that technique, uh, and then you slowly increase the intensity over time to bring that technique over into the lift. And you know that that's the art or beauty of periodization is. You, you have them work at a certain volume and intensity for a couple weeks and then increase it, and then you're going to bring them back down at new percentages, you know, and bring them back up. Right. Jeff, is there any, anything else you can think of that uh, people can do to improve their technique in a remote training environment? Yeah, I think absolutely. And, and kind of uh, it, having that, developing that awareness too, and just when I – you know, talk to athletes, whether it be for the Facebook page or on the phone, is it really helps if you can gain that awareness to when the bar, I mean, we program specifically like Matt said, as far as percentage goes to where, and a lot of literature, what they'll do is, like, well, they'll go wrong is, um, if they're doing a program, they'll constantly go heavy and they're, they'll, once the bar, and the bar will really be slowing down and your position is changing, you break down, it's just really having that awareness to when you're pulling really slow, know when you're raising your hips bad, to know to, hey, let's, let's, let's drop the weight down a little bit to get the, to get the volume in, but let's keep the quality there. That's what I always like to focus on too. Like if you feel the quality suffering of the movement, don't just complete the workout because it's written, written down there. Um, you know, regardless of what percentages really go on how you feel that day, because when the goal, you know, is to, you know, is to improve on your, to improve your technique, there's no point to, to just try to push through the wall with your technique breaking down. All that's going to do is develop, you know, bad habits long term, and then you're, you're going to have to backtrack, um, you know, in the future to try to fix those technique errors, which is, uh, can be very, very challenging if you have a, a lot of reps with bad habits. Right. What do you guys think? There, I mean, there are some programs out there. Uh, one that, that comes to mind based on the conjugate method, um, which is a, a, a powerlifting program. Um, mm -hmm. that, and they're using this for weightlifters. And, and weightlifting in general is just 
infinitely more technical than powerlifting. I'm sure some powerlifters are going to get pissed off at that, but um, it's just so much more technical, right? And so it's it, it just doesn't make sense to apply the same thinking uh, to you know to very very different sports. What do you think are the long term consequences of uh, you know, applying that where basically people are maxing out on a different lift every every time they're in the gym, and it's not the, the full lifts necessarily, but it's a, a a version of the traditional lifts every single every single time they're in the gym. So I can help answer this. So the conjugate method is a proven method and works extremely well for powerlifting. So for your strength lifts, so squatting, benching, pressing pulling, any kind of slower movements, it works great for. But Olympic lifting adds in a different factor. Uh, Olympic lifting is a fast-paced movement, uh, which really taxes the central nervous system, unlike the power lifts do. So at that point, it needs to be trained differently. So I think there's some great things that we do pull from the conjugate method uh, when it comes to the squatting, pulling, and pressing. But you can't do a pure conjugate method on Olympic lifts because there's so many other factors, especially with the central nervous system come into effect, where the body needs more rest uh, and different types of rest uh, into that programming. Yeah, and I actually tried out for about eight months or so where I was snatching and clean jerking four days a week, front squatting two days a week, back squatting two days a week, and literally going as heavy as I could in everything. Um, and... It, it initially it did work, but then I just kind of hit a wall and then I felt like I got slower, then a little slower. And then I started developing these bad technical habits. And, you know, I was always kind of, people would always say, Hey, you'll, you're, you're going to, you're going to adapt. Like, you'll adapt. Your nervous system will adapt, but it, it never, it never really did. Um, and it, it just really felt like it, it kind of, um, you know, set me back some. And basically what I did was I, I cut out, I cut out the heavy lifts uh, as often I was still one day a week I was kind of pushing it went a little lighter the other days added in some other assistant exercise to where I was weak so myself personally overhead strength was weak so I added in took some of that energy towards a couple overhead strength days um, and huge progress put 15 kilos on my clean and jerk um, you know when I was 20 years old without gaining any body weight I actually lost a little body weight and um, and and just by simply still going heavy where where it's not like oh I'm gonna go months without doing a heavy lift I was still doing them every week just not you know four days a week and then targeting those weaknesses so um, I, I think you just have to find that that right balance kind of what I started off to talking about on the call was just identifying those identifying those weaknesses targeting those but still you know but still going heavy in the lifts and still training your central nervous system for what the ultimate goal is to to snatch and clean jerk as most weight as possible for one rep right and just to be clear uh and i think we're all on the same page like obviously some that kind of thing works with some people uh and and not not necessarily the conjugate method but you know maxing out on the full lifts uh, multiple times a week that works for some very very high level athletes and it, it and for a handful of beginner and intermediates right but the problem is when you have thousands of people trying this right and, and it's only working for like a handful of people what 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 what's happening with the, the other 900 and you know 95 people that it's not working they're they're creating poor habits, all of that kind of stuff. Um, 
the more holistic approach is like Matt was talking about where we're getting in quality reps at lower percentages and then we're building up from there from a good base, a good technical base. Um, let's talk about motivation. So you both trained alone quite a bit, especially you, Jeff. What were some different techniques mentally or physically that you use to stay motivated? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely hard because when I, you know, my first really eight years or so in the sport, I was just training in my basement. I mean, you, you guys have seen it. It's just a one platform, one platform gym in the basement training by myself, but no one to push me and, um, you know, on a day to day basis. But really the key for, for me was I, I used to compete pretty frequently and just just going and, you know, getting in the competition setting and just knowing that there's always people out there, you know, better than you. And I, used to, I ordered all the old uh, Iron Mind uh, videos and would watch like the European Championship, the World Championship and watch the, the high level athletes that, that were better than me. And, and just that's really um, that's that, that's really what what drove me to where I really ended up, you know, it, and then then when I would go to like the junior squat camps or go train with Matt, it was always nice to kind of get in that that environment to, you know, to get around a few a few other lifters. I mean, I think it's most ideal to be in an environment where you are, you know, training with some other high level athletes but it's not practical for everyone depending on you know where you live or your, your certain situation so i think you know going going to meets and always keeping in mind that there's you know people out there out there better than you and just to keep uh to, to keep chasing it yeah on my end was quite different so uh while i was training and as a junior uh i had made my first and second junior world team uh, thinking I'm hot, hot shit. And then I'm not even on a number one platform at coach Hatch's gym. Uh, he would always have better athletes than me in there. So I remember thinking I'm hot shit, but I'm on a third platform, you know, trying to get to platform one, uh, platform two is, is Mike Weiss, you know, clean and jerking, you know, 170 kilos at a body weight of, of, of 77 kilos. And, you know, I'm sitting there with a hundred and, 55 or 150 kilos as a 69 i'm thinking to myself man i just need to get up to this next platform then then it might be something and then if i look on platform one you have blair labrano 2000 olympic team alternate clean and jerking 205 kilos as a 105 so like that makes my 150 155 seem minuscule so the competition i really didn't necessarily enjoy competing uh it was just part of the process but I'll never forget most of my competitions, uh, you know, Coach Hatch was really proud of me. But then what I was worried about is, did I improve on the Hatch leaderboard? Did I did I pass up Mike Weiss? Did I pass up Blair Lebrano? You know, it's a Sinclair formula we used to use at the gym. And I, it's this rusty old board. But to me, that was a world, you know. And, yeah, and to that, that that's what motivated me was not the competition, but really just uh, – getting back in the gym and beating the guy who was above me. And then at, at one point I do become the, the guy I'm on platform one. And, but by that point I'm 10 years into 12 years into the program and I'm self-motivated. I, I know what it takes to, to get out there and, and do what I have to do to, to win. And I'm trying to be a mentor to the, to the other kids on platform two and platform three uh, to, to motivate them to get to, to my status. What's the highest platform Perry P made it to? 
Ooh, good question. Uh, he trained on platform two for a little while while I was on platform one. Nice. Kind of short-lived, though. That's a solid platform. Oh, are you kidding me? At one <laughs> at one point, you had Blair Lebrano and Buster Bourgeois, two uh, junior world medalists, training side-by-side, side, and one's on platform two. So Nice. All right, guys, we got to wrap it up in just a second. Let me ask a couple uh, rapid-fire weightlifting questions. Um, Jeff Whitmer, if I were to ask you the year before you retired, what would be what would I find in your gym bag? Oh man! So I used to catch a lot of shit for this because I didn't really actually have. A, I used to call it a Bulgarian gym bag. It was just a plastic. It was like a plastic bag from the the. Um, from the grocery store, I would just throw my lifting shoes and straps in there, and that and that would be it. And then I would just if I needed tape or chalk, I would just borrow other people's shit. That's it. That, that was legit. That, yeah, I would literally <laughs> grab my shoe. I grab my because I was always a guy too, so I was laughing. So I would wear people kind of laugh at it now, but I, I wear shorts and a t-shirt to the gym and now you see people go to the gym and, and no joke. There's there's this group of guys that train in my gym at night. They bring these they bring fucking hockey bags to the gym and they put so much gear on like to do olympic lifting they put the knee pads on and the wraps and and the and the, the tights and and the tights over that and it takes them an hour and a half to get ready then they go and they lift for like 40 minutes and it, it just it confuses me because i'm like god i like i show up with a plastic bag i throw my lifting shoes in there i throw straps in there and i just i go to the gym with shorts and a t-shirt on so I always said, hey, if you got shorts and a t-shirt and your lifting shoes, you're, you're good. That's all you need. That's a, my dad used to always say when we go to the meets, he just go, he goes, uh, he'd say, hey, you got your lifting shoes? I go, yep. He goes, ah, oh, that's all you really need. He goes, we can find that other shit. <laughs> I love it. And I don't I, even know if like, I want right. to ask you, Matt Bruce. You're even, you're even more frugal and and basic than Jeff Whitmer. But no, I had, a couple, I had a couple more things. Uh, I had a belt. Uh, I, I like to use a belt. Jeff Whitmer didn't use much of a belt, especially on uh, Never. cleans. Never. Uh, so I, I did have a belt, uh, but then I had, I guess, two of my little secrets. Uh, I used to carry capsaicin. It's uh, it's like icy hot, but without the icy. Uh, so if I had like a pain in my back or something like that, you put this stuff on. You can get it at like, you know, CVS or Rite Aid or anything like that. You put this stuff on, it gets so hot, it feels like somebody's burning oil on your skin that it, it, it makes you forget about the pain. Uh, so I'd carry capsaicin. I'd, literally, I'd have a, a bottle would last me a couple of years because that's I, I didn't want to use it unless I had to. And the other one I, I liked was uh, peppermint oil. Uh, I, used I, to put I remember it, that. Put I used in to the put, towel, yeah. Yeah, I used to put it on my towel and uh, I used to sniff it during the workout, and I felt like it excited me a little bit. It cleared up my kind of like uh, you see people are powerlifters doing the ammonia packs, yep. uh, but it's not nearly like that. It's it's just a small, much more mild, right? Yeah, mild, refreshing. Uh, and I used to keep it on my towel, and I and I had this green towel, and I would only wash it before the world championships. So it's the same towel I'd keep over my head, wipe my face with. Jesus, it's really disgusting. sad. <laughs> I washed it before the worlds because I didn't want any of those people to, to know how nasty I was. Right. Uh, that and I had and I had these these sweatpants that had so many holes in them from from pulling across my thighs. Uh, and like I said, I would I would wash those like twice a year. And Hatch would make fun of me because he'd say like he can pull them out of my pants and you could stand them straight up. Uh, 
because they were never washed. Oh, it's so sad. Wow. Uh, the uh, yeah, yeah it's interesting. So the, he, the peppermint. Before, before, yeah. Before you move on, Mike, he's leaving out one thing. I got to get to. Yeah, he, go. This is for this is for competitions in his in his gym bag. Something he would never forget was the the enema kits from Walgreens. Oh, no. And, and these so and let me tell you something too. So these weren't these weren't just regular <laughs> enema kits. They were the, he he would get the pre lubed enema kits. Versus um, <laughs> having to get the Vaseline and the lubricant himself, he would buy the pre lubed ones. So he, he was he's a seasoned seasoned veteran at this. Um, it, it was one of his uh, weight cutting uh, techniques. Yeah, for those that haven't competed in a in a meet yet, explain why he had that with him. I'm gonna, ha- you know what, I'm Matt Bruce? Why that. did you oh, have? Not, why did you carry that? This might that be with a whole you? other. This might be a whole other podcast so, in itself. This that that was only for competition. I would bring it to every competition just in case. And there are different parts of my career where, yeah, I use it a lot. Uh, you know, yeah, I was just, I'd be so close to cutting weight and I hated, I hated going in a sauna. I thought that that drained you too much. So I'd rather lay on the bathroom floor and shoot saline water up my butt and sit on the toilet. I know it's disgusting, but, uh, I'd lose like 0.3, 0.4 of a pound and I'd go to sleep feeling satisfied that I was going to make weight. Well, that's great, Matt. I know. I'm pumped he did for you, ha- man. He had uh. the weight cutting down to a science. I will, I will give him that. <laughs> All right. Um, what's the best weightlifting shoe out there, and why? I would. So I've only wore Adidas shoes, and I mean, there's kind of a reason for that too, because I think Adidas was the first to get involved with weightlifting. So I think there's just kind of a sense of a loyalty, uh, you know, for me there. I'm not a big fan of the those the red. I had those red ones, and I think those are what's called the Ada Star or whatever. I don't really like those. I like the uh, the last model, the white one. They were white with the, had the wood shank in them. They were really sturdy. Um, those are that was the best model weights you ever had. I think Hook Grip sells them occasionally for like five hundred bucks or something when he comes across a pair or something crazy. But um, yeah, those those are my favorite shoes. Best ones ever made, in my opinion. Yeah, same as me. So during my career, Adidas was the only elite supplier of weightlifting shoes. Uh, right when I was getting out, uh, Nike started coming out with their shoes, Romelos or whatever. They had sent me a pair at the end of my career, and I had tried them, but the, the heel's a little bit higher than the uh, than the Adidas. So I preferred Adidas because I was already pretty quad dominant, and me being on my toes any more than I wanted to, uh, would lead the weights a lot more forward already, and they were already forward. So, yeah, I preferred the Adidas with the low heel, but I also agree the red ones they came out with were trash. Uh, it seems like the newer ones they got, though, uh, seem to be pretty legit. Uh, but on the other hand, hey, if, if Nikes are good, it's just got a higher heel, and they're very durable. Those things will last a couple of years. Awesome. My last question, what, when is it appropriate to wear a belt? Uh, so I'll answer that first. Um, I would say anything above 90% for any kind of, uh, strength lifts or the clean. So, uh, if you're doing pulls or squatting or cleans, uh, I would, I would stick away from the presses, but you could wear it for a press, but yeah, overall any strength lift above 90%, uh, but you never really want to wear it for a snatch. Uh, number one, it gets in the way, but you really want to refrain from using it too much because it'll take away from your core development. 
Uh, and try to stay away from it on pulls if you can. Uh, and Mr. Whitmer is going to tell you, just go ahead and throw it away. Yeah, I mean, kind of what Matt said is as little as possible. But I came from, the, you know, my school of thought is that you should not rely on one. You should build your own belt, do a lot of exercises and build it up. And I didn't like one because I felt less athletic. And I think for me, weightlifting, you know, obviously pretty flexible. And I always felt that the key for me was movement. And I didn't want anything that felt like it restricted me, whether it be even a squat. Um, and I just, I don't like the idea of people kind of relying on them from day one. I think you should really kind of build up that strength without one. But if you do find that, hey, like Matt said, above 90%, if you can, the, the, the name of the game is to lift as much weight possible. And if you throw a belt on, you can get some more kilos out more power to you go ahead and throw one on but you know the belt for me it wasn't it wasn't for me it never had any serious back injuries um just because i went so long without using one and i did a lot of hyper extensions some light rdls and a lot of core work um just to, you know to prevent any any sort of injury and it helped my dad was a chiropractor so that probably helped uh, right helped as well so it was getting regular adjustments too so awesome all right, guys, let's wrap it up. Um, tell everybody look real briefly about Brutoli and who it is good for, who it isn't good for. Yeah, absolutely. So Brutoli, we have three levels now pretty excited about that um we have a basic rx level with a brood ali rx it's three day a week program and like matt said earlier we have the absolute and dynamic strength the programs you go through an assessment that program is more geared for i would say someone who just has the time to, to lift a few days a week or if they're a crossfitter just looking to supplement their their work already with a little additional um uh, weightlifting work in there, I would say that's more geared for them. Then we also had to compete in elite program for people who have more time to do the Olympic lifts, want to put more time into it where that's five, six days a week of programming. Um, that's a little more, a little more intense too with people with, hence the name uh, compete people with some ambitions of possibly competing in a, in a meet at some point. And we have uh, it's individualized and there's, pro, um, there's peaking programs uh, within that and, and check-ins for the, for the athletes. So really regardless of what your goal is, is just to get a little better at the lifts or to help your crossfit uh, scores out some or if you want to be a high level weightlifter really uh, it just has that that broad appeal and we even have athlete professional athletes that are using like brood ollie compete as their strength conditioning program and we're making some you know tweaks accordingly while they're during during the season um but it definitely has a it's a broad appeal for for you know regardless of what your, your goals are with weightlifting we have something for you and guys, to learn more about that, you can go to BruteStrengthTraining.com slash programs. Uh, where can people find each of you on social media? Uh, you can find me on Instagram just at Jeff Whitmer. And that's yeah. W-I-T-T-M-E-R. Yes, and sir. You can find me at Bruce Barbell. Most of my posts are just uh, my guys in the gym. Uh, I got a, a young kid, 20-year-old Daniel Klein. Uh, really making a name for himself. Uh, hopefully, he'll get on the world team in the next two years. And uh, I got uh, another lifter, Mike Weiss, who will be going to the uh, Pan Am Masters. And he's looking to go set the American record uh, in less than a month. So uh, be looking for his name in the 35 to 40 age group. Uh, but, yeah, most of it is is me just posting my lifters on there and, and of course, talking about some brute stuff. And you might see Mike Weiss catch – the new American record in the bottom of a snatch 
stick his tongue out at the judges and then stand up with it. That that has actually <laughs> happened in competition. Uh, uh, I don't know if he has the balls to do that on that kind of stage, but that is a uh, that is a possibility. Uh, don't challenge. I want to I want to test him, old man wise. Yeah. Would that would they let that happen? You think? Absolutely. Yeah. As long as he doesn't do it to the judge. Right. Yeah. Mike Wise, yeah. if you're listening to this, I expect that out of you. All right, guys. <laughs> I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. For sure. All right. Th- thanks, guys.